Hello everyone, it's October 20th, 2020. This week we're going over the Lunar Gateway contracts that have been awarded to both foreign and domestic. Well, specifically NASA and ESA. And NASA is all about cryogenic fuels in space. I guess that was a spoiler. Well, I won't spoil the rest. Let's get to it and lift off. And we've got the tower. Welcome to episode 281 of the Overall Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. All right, Dennis is back, so we're all reassembled. So, Dennis, you had, you had mentioned just about like an hour ago a near miss that somehow I missed, uh, but I did read up on it a little bit, and uh, that sounds scary. Yeah, right. And, and Ben, you've been following this too, right? This is this mm-hmm. was a, a near miss um, that was really buzzing on social media. Yeah, so I wanted to give credit. Uh, Delta V was the first uh, time that I had seen it. He's, he shared the tweet in our Discord. Um, about Leo Labs monitoring a very high-risk conjunction where they had already given a uh, probability collision between 1% and 20%. They first started tweeting about it on Tuesday, and it was going to be, I think, Friday, depending on where you were, Yeah, was when the conjunction was going to happen. They were large, and they were in a higher, pretty high orbit, so you know, this is not something they would quickly. 900 kilometers, yeah. was it? Yeah. Plus, they were, I think they missed by something like 25 meters, somewhere yeah. around them, which is scary. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and one of the spacecraft had a large boom. So Yeah, but we don't we don't know if that if the I yeah, 24 25 meter um distance was calculated as points or volumetric models. Um they they may have been calculating from the edge of a sphere to the edge of a sphere. Uh, I'm not I'm not 100% sure. Um different people calculate that different ways so and so this this was what a def- this was a defunct soviet satellite and a changgen 4c third stage so that's why you can end up getting a combined mass of about 2800 kilograms and apparently a relative velocity of 32,900 miles per hour which is pretty fast oh, which yeah, sounds they like were they're coming basically head on kind of yeah i mean or at least you know we're more head on than in the same direction. I mean, that's just and, like a worst case scenario. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is that uh, Jonathan McDowell estimated the potential collision energy at around 14 tons of TNT. So like five gigajoules. Oh, sorry, 60 gigajoules plus or minus five. The interesting thing, he pointed out that it, it's actually a pretty wide margin of error because we're not sure how much fuel is left in the upper mm-hmm. stage. Um, so it could have been, uh, <laughs> it could have been pretty pretty crazy but yeah it just not wouldn't have been a good thing and we we had talked right the last big one well there was there was that near miss that was what an intel sat and then another russian one i thought the last big near miss was an iridium but at this point it's hard to keep track oh. of it and I say an I word, I would easily conflate those two. Yeah, but this one is just so much bigger, higher up, faster. Just, <laughs> And I think it also came closer, or at least, you know, like the odds were calculated as being closer. So there just has to be something done about that because I'm tired of hearing about these near misses because one day it's not going to be a near miss. It's going to be a collision. I mean, co- yeah, collisions happen all the time. It's just waiting for the next big one, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it's yeah. like you said, it's going to happen. What's the name of the effect, the the debris cloud? Oh, the... Kessler uh, syndrome. Kessler, Kessler, Kessler syndrome. syndrome. There you go. I kept thinking Korolev effect, Kessler syndrome.
there were a couple of announcements by NASA and ESA about some cool contracts that were awarded. And this might have been at the ISC. Uh, we're not sure, but probably, or at least one of them was. Yeah, ESA was. We're not 100% sure about NASA, but I, that was my impression that was that it was also at IAC. If they didn't do it there, they kind of missed a trick because that's where you do that kind of thing, right? I mean, you have this <laughs> mm -hmm. nice forum, so why not go to the big conference and do it there? Of course, they, I don't think anyone went anywhere, right? This was all virtual this year, so. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, the total amount awarded, and this is you know for Lunar Gateway, for NASA, we're looking at $370 million. And what's really interesting is that nearly 70% of that was just for the development of cryogenic fuel technology. I guess that kind of lets us know how important that is and how they're, you know, prioritizing that above pretty much anything else, it seems. Or maybe this is just a technology that, you know, costs a lot of money um, yeah, because I think that's, it's, yeah. you're dealing with cryogenics. But I mean, still, I mean, that's pretty neat because I think that that should be done because we just haven't really seen any kind of, you know, cool cryogenic stuff going on in space and, you know, hydrogen and methane and those types of things are pretty much essential, I think. So, you know, Pretty neat. And so, yeah, there's a couple of companies we have listed here. As uh, as far as cryogenic fuel management goes, we have four organizations. And the first one, I don't think I've heard of. I don't know if you have, but they're called ETA or I guess like... ETA, maybe? Yeah, like ETA. Like the Greek letter? Oh, that might be it. Okay, that's probably it. I'd never heard of them, though, so... <laughs> yeah. So, ETA Space of Merritt Island. So, they're just right there at the Cape. But yeah, they have a payload that they will be putting on a photon and this will actually collect fuel management data over the course of nine months. I don't know what exactly that means because we don't have any information here. I know that, yeah, I think, Dennis, you were trying to find some slides or any kind of, you know, additional information and we're not <laughs> finding it. So we don't really know much about these particular, yeah, we don't know much, but... um that's what we do know. So it's, it must be like out of necessity, small because it's flying on a photon. I guess they're going to be like moving some cryogenic fuels back and forth. Could it also be just, just storing it on board under, you know, their conditions yeah. and seeing how the, how much it leaks off, kind of the rates of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a nine month, uh, nine month data collection period. So yeah, it's, it's probably just. They they may be doing some pumping, but I imagine they're they're flying tanks and seeing how long they last. Yeah, because if it's over nine months, I mean, I suppose if it was any other experiment, they could do it in a much shorter period of time. Yeah, a transfer shouldn't take nine months. <laughs> Most likely not. So probably a small amount of fuel on a small rocket, and yeah, they just measure the off-gassing. I mean, that'll be valuable, right? I mean, no one else stuffs a tank full of cryogenic fuel just for the purpose of monitoring, you know... <laughs> how much it, it leaks off. So. And then next on the list is Lockheed Martin. They will be doing in-flight testing of more than a dozen fuel management technologies. So that's even you know more vague. <laughs> but they did specify liquid hydrogen. So And then, of course, there is SpaceX. And we do know what this technology demonstration will be. And this is the transfer of liquid oxygen, in this case, 10 tons between starships. Is it between two different starships? Because the space.com article says between tanks on a starship vehicle. Maybe I didn't read it carefully yeah. enough. I thought it was between starships. Yeah, I wonder if that's just them moving fuel to their headers and this the header tanks and this is just a good way to oh yeah, you're to right. throw yeah. some cash at them and, and to secure data and lessons learned. I suppose it was just misreading combined with wishful thinking, so it's just one starship right. vehicle, not two. Yeah, but but, but space.com did include a video of the two starships. Yeah, I did see that. Fueling, you know, yeah. aft to aft in that same article. So <laughs> that's why I was under the impression that it might have been multi-vehicle, but... Yeah, so just one starship, but still cool. Um, I would like to see, oh, yeah. yeah, like you said, the aft to aft. Tons is a lot. <laughs> by far the largest ever 
done with a cryogenic fuel. I don't know how many crowd or how much cryogenic fuel has ever been transferred in space, period, but yeah. if any. No, no, no. It, it, cryogenics n- never, as far as I know, storable propellants. Mm-hmm. It, it would basically be the, uh, what's the name of that experiment? The refueling experiment on, on ISS. I mean, it wasn't even a free-flying mm-hmm. spacecraft. It was just stuck on the outside of ISS, so. They do routinely, don't they transfer fuel on the Russian segment from, yep. you know, the Soyuz? Yeah. But that's not a cryogenic fuel, obviously. But yeah. I guess, yeah, if we're thinking about, about that system, probably Mir got, uh, got refueled as well. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, I want to correct myself real quick. Yeah. Salyut and Mir space stations did refueling. So that, I mean, that is some pretty big, uh, you know, like actual operational use of, of refueling technologies, but it, it it's a far cry from moving liquid oxygen from one vehicle yeah. to another. So that's SpaceX, and then moving on to ULA, they will be demonstrating what they call smart propulsion, and that will be carried out on a Vulcan upper stage, and that will be using both liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen. So very cool. And they will be testing precise tank pressure control, tank-to-tank transfer, and a multi-week propellant storage. But yeah, they have to get that Vulcan up and going. And I didn't specify for any of these the amount that was awarded, because I figured that wouldn't be too interesting, but it was a lot for each of them. So, because again, this is, you know, the bulk of $370 million. So we're looking at, I think that was like $250 million, somewhere around there. So like $27 million here, 50 there. It broadly tracks onto, you know, Lockheed and ULA, right? Yeah. They got the biggest pieces yep. of it. Uh, SpaceX got, you know, maybe two-thirds of what they got. And then Ada Space got maybe one-third of what they got. Sounds about right. And then moving on to the other aspect of these awards, which is, you know, the non-fuel transfery stuff, which has to do with, the, you know, like anything having to do with the lunar surface. And I picked some of them because it was more than this, but, you know, just a few to talk about um, some mm-hmm. of the more interesting ones. And I might have missed one if you want to look at that. But um, first up would be Astrobotic. They received a chunk of change to mature and demonstrate fast wireless charging on the moon. So, I mean, again, I'm probably missing something, but why is this a thing that needs to happen? Fast wireless charging. Yeah. Is it just because those interfaces, having to plug things in is uh a bad idea because of regolith? Yep, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so if you, if you can have an interface that has, you know, no real tight tolerances, you just smush two coils Mm -hmm. up against each other. That's that's a great way to to do power transfer, but you know it, it's interesting because we've never had vehicles that need to recharge from you know like a, a mothership or a lander or something. They all have onboard fuel generate or uh, uh, energy generation. So, um, but you have sort of a unique situation on the moon because the days are so long, or you know rather the nights are so long that yeah, having um, having big batteries on a lander might really be advantageous you know if you're if your rover doesn't have to have batteries that are large enough to get it through the night you know you just dock and and do uh like a power takeoff kind of thing and and keep your keep your rover powered from the big batteries on the lander is it not the case because i don't know much about wireless charging but even with like you know things like smartphones these days it's just not very efficient right like you're going to lose a lot of energy doing that transfer and you would think that that would be important, but if it's solar power, then I guess that doesn't make much of a difference. So yeah, it just it just means you have to have more battery space dedicated to cover those losses. But you know, mm. it's it's probably important to have in your back pocket, even if it's not. Uh, mm-hmm. a good idea for every single mission. Yeah. So yeah, that's pretty neat. And then uh, next up is Mass and Space Systems, and they will build and demonstrate universal chemical heat electric power source or power sources for payloads in lunar nights. So basically, how do you keep mm. some kind of a spacecraft or, you know, a little rover warm through 
the lunar night. What's interesting about this is it, it says it has to be universal. So I imagine something that's very, very modular and you can just attach to any type of a vehicle or habitation module, maybe. I don't know. And it will use both chemical and electric power. So I wish we had more information on these, but we can't seem to find it. We'll, we'll turn into, I think, interesting news segments in the next year or so. <laughs> yeah. I actually have uh, more information. So Mastin got a Siebers contract earlier this year, it looks like. And it's uh, metal oxidation warming. Um, so it's, they call it moderate temperature chemical reactions to deliver heat for thermal control. Um, with order of magnitude greater specific energy than battery-based approaches, which is which is pretty cool because like when when you're heating something, you basically get a hundred percent efficiency, assuming that all of the heat that you're generating goes into the thing that you're trying to heat. So if you're like heating a, a house with a space heater, every single space heater is a hundred percent efficient because even the energy lost to running a fan, yeah. Where does that energy? It gets turned into heat. Like eventually it all, it all goes into heating the room. Um, so, you know, on the moon, like obviously you have to be careful about, um, radiating heat off before it gets to your target system. But using chemicals, it, it's not about efficiency and heat generation. It's about efficiency. It, it's about specific energy, how much heat you can pack into, uh, to a specific amount of mass or volume. So let's take a look at the next one, a company called Precision Combustion. They are also developing some kind of solid oxide fuel stack, and uh, that will be used for combustion of methane and oxygen, as well as other resources on the moon. So I guess collecting resources and then combusting them, that's all very vague to me, um, and I've never heard of the company. But that's a pretty interesting mm -hmm. idea. And then the next one, we have Intuitive Machines, and they will be, I think we have talked about them before, they will be developing a deployable hopper lander, which is capable of carrying one kilogram of payload of more than 2.5 kilometers. Yeah, that one's pretty neat. And there, like I said, there were about five or six other awards. But yeah, so that's all the NASA awards, or most of them. Then I think on the ESA side of things, we have some more stuff. Yeah, so uh, ESA is... Uh, hopefully going to be contributing to Gateway. Uh, obviously, Gateway is out of the critical path for uh, Artemis. And I, I believe that there's like provisions for, for Gateway being US only and not having collaborations. But, you know, maybe these contracts going out, um, th these are construction contracts. I think maybe that uh, starts to lock in um international cooperation. So um, ESA is contributing two major modules to uh, Gateway. One is ESPRIT, the European Systems... Oh, European System Providing Refueling Infrastructure and Telecommunications. Um, and then there's IHAB, the International Habitation Module. There had been a bunch of different uh, contractors involved in the design, but now Talas Elenia Spas has uh, secured uh, construction contracts for both modules. So they'll be building both of those two guys. Um, and then uh, sort of uh, related news here, we're going to diverge uh, gradually here. So our first little divergence is uh, Airbus and Teleselenia were also asked to develop um, lunar lander concepts. Are these two different uh, concepts or the same concept that they're working on together? The same concept together. And so, yeah, I just wanted to highlight that there was um, other, you know, steps towards, you know, the lunar surface, you know, this lunar ecosystem that's been taken by Europe. And you saw already. And so, yeah, so Airbus and Talisalania were working on the European Large Logistics Lander, or EL3. 
um, which I've also seen called uh, the Heracles uh, European Large Logistics Lander on ESA's website. Oh, I was just going to say, I'm glad that you pronounced Heracles because I read that as Hercules and it's clearly a different I know. word. When I was younger, I used to get angry at seeing it this way. I'm like, no, it's Hercules, damn it. And I've seen the cartoon and all that, but yeah. <laughs> different God. <laughs> I've seen the cartoon. So the idea is this would be a uh, a European independent lander. You know, at least, you know, they could potentially just have, you know, keep all the ball in their court on this one um, and deliver 1.7 tons to anywhere on the uh, lunar surface. And so, um, yeah, their plan for this is uh, a first flight later this decade and then uh, continuing through the 2030s with maybe three to five missions per decade is kind of their, their aspirations at this point. Um, and then to diverge a little bit farther during all these announcements, um, ESA also announced that um, the Earth Return Orbiter, um, part of the Mars Sample Return Mission, has been contracted to Airbus. Um, that's that's going to be really cool. Um, I love that. Like, it, it sucks that the Mars Sample Return Mission has to happen over such a long period of time. But it's really cool that it's coming in so many different chunks. You know, really uh, cooperative uh, effort where you're not just sending one vehicle, you're sending multiple missions to take care of different parts. And, you know, it's, it's just like uh, supply lines on Earth. You know, you, you have uh, small trucks delivering cargo to a train, the train takes it across the country, and then you break everything down and move them out to distribution centers. And then, you know, you have uh, the final mile run by a different company. Like it's, mm. it, yeah. it's, it's really cool to, to see this infrastructure begin to be built in space. All right, let's do three short and sweets. Well, what's the first one, Dennis? First up, prototype rover tested in Mojave Desert. NASA has tested its dual-axle prototype rover, which can shift from one mode in which it's a four-wheeled rover to another that splits the vehicle in two. The rear of the rover can anchor itself to the ground and deploy experiments, while the front detaches and moves freely on two wheels with a tether connecting them. This could be useful for rappelling down steep slopes and exploring currently inaccessible locations on Mars. The rover performed extremely well in the field test, undocking its tethered half successfully before moving down the slope. A video, which I highly recommend, is available from JPL. All right, next, uh, fire at Firefly's Wallops launch complex. Thursday night, a fire broke out at Wallops LC2, uh, where Firefly Aerospace contractors were disassembling a mobile service tower. During a cutting operation, flames engulfed the upper levels of this eight or nine story tall legacy structure. Fortunately, the fire was extinguished quickly and did not occur near any modern equipment. Firefly's statement does not mention any injuries or casualties, and the writing style suggests that none occurred. The fire has no impact on Firefly personnel, equipment, or schedule, which is very fortunate for their recently qualified Alpha vehicle scheduled to launch in November or December. Very exciting. Uh, next up, CSA atmosphere success and failure. Cosmonauts use a tea bag to trace down air currents in the module this week. Okay, a tea bag. While the TASS article isn't super clear, it sounds like cosmonauts set up cameras, tore open a tea bag, and closed up the module. Footage shows an air current that appears to be forming from the leak, which has been tentatively identified as a fatigue crack described as a scratch in the hull. 
a patch was applied slowing the leak. Use of a U.S. hard patch is being discussed. During or shortly after the test, the oxygen supply system failed, and now the entire station is being supplied from the oxygen generation system in Destiny, pending diagnosis and repair. So that's really cool. Using tea bags for things that yeah. they were never meant to be used for. <laughs> now, now I had heard that the the recent you know MS mission, the recent Soyuz, brought up some equipment specifically for tracking down the leak. Did they bring up tea bags? Was it? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they said, "Hey, you know, these are good for detecting leaks as well." It's it's the Russian segment. They. They always have tea over there. So moving on to this week in Spaceflight History, uh, we have a couple of winners. We have Eric and Ben Hallert. Yeah, and, and real quick, I need to apologize to Ben Hallert because I missed his name yet, uh, last week. Uh, I had his tweet pulled up and I just didn't type it into the show notes. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. That's why he was conspicuously absent because uh, yeah. Yeah, he usually gets them. <laughs> Double congratulations to Ben Hallert. <laughs> yep. There we go. So yeah, a fresh pair of eyes. That's... Um, pretty easy once you know what the event is. So that was on the 26th of October 2006, and that was the launch of the Stereo mission, which I feel like we've talked about before. Oh, sure. Yeah. You had to have talked about Stereo many times because it's just such a cool space mission, and it's something you can't really ignore. You know, it's been up there and is still partially operational. And so I kind of want to just go into a little more detail about, in particular, the instrumentation and the the types of orbits that uh, Stereo did. And it's just really an awesome idea of a spacecraft. And so it stands for the uh, Solar Terrestrial Relations Observatory, where terrestrial relations are adding a few extra letters to spell out stereo. It's the third NASA Solar Terrestrial Probes spacecraft. So that Solar Terrestrial Probes program uh, started with the timed mission and Hinode and then Stereo uh, after, you know, it's 2006 launch. And more recently, the um, MMS mission. And uh, in 2024, IMAP will continue that series. And so these are ones that seem to really, in particular, focus on uh, coronal mass ejections and, you know, propagation of uh, the solar wind and solar particles through interplanetary space. But um, Stereo, uh, the reason why they kind of forced that uh, acronym is that they wanted to make this a spacecraft with stereo vision, essentially. And so you can get genuine 3D images of the sun and be able to understand the you know structure of these coronal mass ejections and the solar wind in that third dimension. To be fair, it's not it's not stereo vision like we classically think of it because um, they were only, you know, within 20 degrees or so of each other around the sun for a short amount of time. You know, it is still stereo vision when they're nine, you know, 100 and 180 degrees opposed to each other on opposite sides of the sun, but it's that sort of I didn't say stereo. human stereo. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's the sort of stereo vision that we attribute to, to deer and, you know, that, that kind of, right. um, yeah. yeah. If you could, if you could take your eyeballs, I hope this isn't too macabre and just sort of like let them drift around the room and look right. at things at different angles, then that's the type of stereo vision. We're, we're talking about the sloth from, uh, what was that? What was that movie? The, I say uh, the DreamWorks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> With the eyes on, on opposite yeah. sides of his body. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fair point. So, so I'll call it superior stereo vision. 
and, oh, uh, and time okay. varying as well, which is really interesting. Yeah, <laughs> excellent spin. Okay, continue. So um, the two spacecraft are stereo A and B, which uh, it's either one way to just uh, label them, but in reality they're often referred to as stereo above and stereo behind, or even just above and behind as the two spacecraft. And so they're uh, a pair of... Um, essentially twin spacecraft where the only difference is the uh, size of the occulters. I'll talk about the uh, chronographs on there later, uh, as well as the position of some of the uh, detectors uh, from one of the uh, instrument packages. But otherwise, they, they look the same. You know, they're, you know, kind of a, a standard looking, you know, boxy spacecraft bus that was built by uh, John Hop Johns Hopkins uh, uh, APL uh, Applied Physics Laboratory in particular. It had a lot. They each had a launch mass of 620 kilograms or 1,364 pounds on launch. That's a great way to redundant myself. <laughs> they they had a launch mass of 620 kilograms or 1,364 pounds. Um, you know, with the fuel on board. And, you know, we're controlled by uh, APL's Mission Operations Center. Even though the deep space network communicates with these spacecraft, right, you, you have the, you know, the, the PIs, right, that are basically running the operations, basically send their commands to DSN and let them know kind of what they would like their, uh, uh, you know, spacecraft to do or what they would like to receive from their spacecraft. In any event, this pair of spacecraft, there's one other thing I wanted to add about, yeah, the way that it looks physically is that it has a pair of solar panels, right, that stretch out, I don't know, two by fours on each side of the spacecraft, but they're not lined up. And so you have to do kind of like, if you started on the end of one solar panel and went through the solar panel through the spacecraft and then down the other length of the solar, the second solar panel, you'd have to make kind of a 90 degree zigzag on there. And so, um, I'm not yeah, sure left, exactly what that was. Left turn and right turn. Left turn and right turn. It's, it's a Tetris piece. That one Tetris sure, piece yeah. has that shape. <laughs> right. Uh, I kind of mentioned already that the, the, the objectives, you know, uh, of the solar terrestrial probes program and, you know, stereo was, uh, essentially all about, uh, coronal mass ejections, right? So this is, you know, these, uh, events where the sun, you know, kind of uh, flares up and essentially releases a lot of charged particles. The really cool thing about this, you know, is based on the instruments that were put on board, is that they're able to track these events anywhere from, you know, as they leave the surface of the sun to where they reach the Earth's orbit. And so uh, really excited to talk about that. Uh, it was launched uh, on October 26th. 2006, uh, on a Delta II uh, 7925-10L. Uh, so, right, those first four digits, uh, it's always fun to uh, right, explain what they are. Uh, this means that it was a 7000 series rocket with nine boosters, the second digit, so seven, nine. And then the two and five, the final two digits, um, the two is a little boring. It was an AJ-10 second stage which engine, which is what they all had. And... Um, you know, in this particular delta. And then uh, the five refers to the uh, third stage being a uh, PAM or payload assist module uh, with a star 48B solid uh, motor. Uh, it was really neat. I, I, I had no idea about this, how they uh, put stereo into its orbit is that they started with a phasing orbit stage. So uh, they were launched and both spacecraft were put on uh, high eccentricity orbits with an apogee that extended a bit beyond uh, the moon. And they had synchronized it in such a way that after two months, Stereo B would basically have a gravity assist from the moon that would, you know, I don't know if you call it de-assist, that would basically swing it behind so that now it's lagging behind the Earth. And then one month after that, 
stereo A, or stereo uh, ahead, will be swung ahead of the Earth. It was during that time, right, they're doing their calibrations. They're much closer to the Earth, right? They've got, you know, much uh, better bandwidth uh, 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 for communications. Uh, after that, though, they uh, then would basically drift apart by 44, 45 degrees uh, in longitude uh, every year. This <laughs> what we were alluding to earlier, Ben, right? That it's, you know, a time-varying uh, stereoscopic vision of the sun that's changing. Uh, over time, uh, as time varying things often do. The instruments on board consisted of four main packages. Um, and the first one uh, is the one nearest and dearest to my heart because it's the one that, you know, is observing light coming from the sun. And so it's called a uh, SETCHI, which is the Sun Earth Connections Coronal and Heliospheric Investigation. And so it's, uh, it's named after an Italian uh, astronomer who was a real pioneer of uh, imaging during uh, solar eclipses. And so this was a nice uh, tie-in uh, there. And so some, uh, some people or groups or teams are really good at acronyms. I've never been myself. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. you know, power to them for pulling mm -hmm. this one out. And so um, it, it's actually a suite of, you know, uh, remote sensing uh, uh, telescopes and imagers. In particular, it has a, uh, an extreme ultraviolet imager uh, called the EUVI, a two uh, Lyot coronagraphs, which are, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, the bread and butter coronagraph, which blocks mm. the disk of the sun and lets you observe outside of the sun. So these can be used for, you know, anything from, you know, you put this on a ground-based telescope and you can place the coronagraph to beat down the light from a star and then do direct imaging of planets that are orbiting around there too. And so that's, a coronagraph is basically you, you block off the center object that you're looking at and image around it, but talk about that. And then the real uh, thing that made this mission so, you know, amazing, in addition to being a pair of spacecraft that are kind of, you know, getting different uh, views at the same time of the sun and the, you know, interplanetary space between the Earth and the sun is a uh, is the heliospheric imager, which is actually two imagers uh, at different angles and different fields of view. But uh, what's really cool about this is the, the field of view is gigantic essentially. And this is how they're able to go and basically be able to monitor the entire distance less than an astronomical unit uh, from the sun. And so uh, it had two uh, compression uh, levels that they would uh, basically do. When they were taking science, they uh, only compressed the data up to 20 times, uh, but they also had a, a higher compression mode of 200 times where they'd be able to every, I believe it was every few minutes, basically be able to read out uh, data. And so this was used specifically to aid in space weather, right? Because you can imagine these coronal mass ejections have, you know, an important part on just understanding, you know, spacecraft uh, in low Earth orbit, you know, the ISS, they want to know about these these uh, events. Um, and this, you know, type of thing will be even more important, right? When we have, you know, lunar gateway or just, you know, sending people back to the moon. The, the, first, uh, instru the first instrument in the uh, SETCHI package, uh, uh, the EUVI, the Extreme Ultraviolet Imager, uh, basically, uh, you know, is imaging the disk of the sun uh, and out to about 1.7 uh, solar radii. And so any of the cool images you see of the sun that are in three dimensions from this, these spacecraft is coming from the EUVI. Um, if you're seeing like the, the sun itself, it's, it's got an interesting filter setup. I liked where they, um, basically have, you can imagine right the, at the aperture of the telescope, you have this, this aluminum film, uh, that's set up there to basically, you know, block out most of the light, except, you know, the relevant ultraviolet range. And then it's split into four quadrants. Okay. And each of those four quadrants is going to allow in a different channel of light, different band of uh, wavelengths. And so then behind that is essentially, you know, a 90 degree 
uh, opening that just rotates around and lets in the light only from one of those filters. And it, it, it rotates with, uh, uh, you know, something like a 40 millisecond switch to get to each of uh, those four positions, those four quadrants. And so it, it can let in the light essentially in kind of real time because the sun is quite bright. You don't need to expose for a while. <laughs> and so it's, it's totally fine to basically be swinging around this quickly. I, I just thought that was a really neat way to, it's not necessarily simultaneous observations, but if you can observe within, you know, I guess 43 milliseconds times three, you know, then that's essentially near simultaneous imaging. The telescope itself is a, is a Ritchie Cradian uh, that has a tip tilt secondary, which is always cool. There's, you know, a couple kind of coarse actuators that allow the secondary to kind of bend to improve the focus of the image there. And uh, use two LEDs as aliveness sources. So internal there, there's a violet and a blue LED light that would kind of be used for, you know, uh, you know, calibrations and uh, just basically testing how the the health of the the, the instrument. That's a really cool one. Uh, the, you can get some, see some really cool stereoscopic images of the sun uh, if you have 3D glasses. And then uh, there are the coronagraphs, uh, Core 1 and Core 2. Uh, core 1 was the one that looked closer into the sun. And so coronagraphs are really interesting. Essentially, right, imagine you've got the sun, okay, have your telescope optics focus an image of the sun somewhere kind of upstream in your telescope. And then where that focused image of the sun is, put a physical occulter there that stops the sun dead in its tracks, essentially that image. And then you still then use other lenses to go and image the light further out from that. And then that's where you then actually hit your CCD and make your image, your science image that you care about. And so uh, this one uh, could observe from 1.4 solar radii to four. Uh, and it was the first coronagraph adapted to space. I'm not sure, you know, what the details were of what they adapted to make it space worthy because it wasn't the first coronagraph put into space. But, you know, it holds that superlative, I guess. <laughs> it, mm. it holds that first. <laughs> and so, um, and it, it observes at H alpha, which is at, uh, 656 nanometers. It's kind of whenever you see those cool images of the sun in general, even with like, you know, a, a backyard scope where it's very red. Um, and you see like a lot more structure and kind of all these bumps and wiggles all over the surface of the sun. That's, uh, that's hydrogen alpha or H alpha. And so, uh, the reason for that is that, you know, most of the light that is trying to beat down from out there is glare, you know, from the sun. Even the coronagraph is going to stop everything. And so it just focuses on this H alpha line to kind of map out what's happening in the, you know, outer parts of the sun. And it could see much more faintly than the EUVI could, you know, away from the disk. And then uh, Core 2 is the kind of uh, other coronagraph that pairs with it. And this one goes further out to about 15 solar radii. And it was, you know, it, it shares heritage from uh, uh, coronagraphs that were put on, uh, or a chronograph that was put on SOHO in particular, the another one of these solar observatories you can't really uh, get away with. Stai in the chat is pointing out that space weather is not just important for, you know, LEO and ultimately, you know, Artemis and Lunar Gateway and things like that, but even on um, uh, polar routed flights, uh, you get basically, you know, a, a heads up on whether, you know, there's space weather, I guess, that you need to be aware of. And so that's something I, I never thought about, but it makes total sense. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. He's showing an image of like an actual flight plan and, and it says no space weather in this case. Mm -hmm. So, you know, skies are clear. That's so cool. Or space Thanks, is clear. Yeah. <laughs> and then the uh, the fourth image, uh, the fourth instrument is the real, you know, I think the meat and potatoes about this instrument package is the uh, the the heliospheric imager, or HI. 
Helios and Coriolis, uh, other spacecraft, had Forerunner concepts. This one was very, uh, very much different. And the way this works is you essentially have this shoebox, okay? And in the shoebox, you've got these two imagers that, you know, let's say if, you know, the long axis of the shoebox is aimed at the sun, the two uh, imagers are towards the rear of the shoebox, right? Right at the back end, away from the sun. But they're aimed towards the sun. Then, though, because looking at the sun, that's not going to be very useful for how these are designed, they're then tipped up. And the, uh, and the one that's at the way back is tipped up only a little bit. And the one that sits in front of it is deeper down or deeper in the shoebox, but tipped up at an even higher angle. So you've got these crisscrossing fields of view where, you know, the, the one imager at the furthest back has a narrower field of view that's aimed closer. It's a tighter field of view, but it's closer to the sun, though still off the sun's uh, axis. And then the other imager has a, uh, a field of view that's wider and aimed further out. And so that's how you're able to go and get these kind of images where you can see all of the sort of interplanetary space, you know, between the Earth's orbit and the sun. And so you can really understand. And again, you're getting this from two vantage points of like, you know, this, you know, this, this coronal mass ejection propagating all the way from the surface of the sun out to the Earth's orbit. And it just really is a brilliant mission to be able to do something like this, you know? And it picks up a ton of zodiacal light. So this this light that also, you know, affects, you know, the chronographs, but mostly the, the heliospheric imager. There's all this light left over from the solar system's formation. And so it's this, you know, this, you know, the little grains of dust that are still, you know, scattered light. You can see this after a sunset. If you see what looks like, you know, still some light kind of over in the direction of the sunset, or I guess before sunrise, um, that's actually just the dust and the ecliptic scattering light. Basically, they have to really tease out a very faint signal on top of all that. And so, you know, very sensitive uh, uh, instruments there. Really cool stuff. The SETI package is, I think, just an amazing thing that on its own would make the spacecraft totally worth it. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a guider scope, but that doesn't, not terribly exciting. The second main instrument package, I'll go through these other three a little quicker um, because they're not telescopes. <laughs> no. <laughs> and so um, the, <laughs> I'm sorry, my bias is showing. If I was a radio person, then I would go nuts about one of these, but uh, or about this one, but I'm not. The S waves package is called, uh, which stands for stereo waves. And so it's written with an S slash waves. Um, and the idea is that this is a radio and plasma wave experiment, right? So this is a radio imager that is going to, just like, you know, the telescopes, it is still a remote sensing uh, instrument where it is trying to pick up anywhere from subhertz to 30 megahertz frequency radio radiation, E&M radiation coming from uh, the sun and from the solar wind, from the particles uh, that are around there. And so this is, um, you know, really, really low frequency, really, really long wavelength electromagnetic radiation. This is something you can't do from the ground. And so it's very important to get that up in space. And prior to this, most of this kind of part of the radio spectrum was observed by like, uh, I guess, you know, smaller, less ambitious uh, spacecraft missions. I mean, they still, you know, had this, we had observed that this wavelength in space or within this wavelength range in space before, but not quite as, you know, long-term and ambitiously as, uh, as this bad boy. So, you know, by observing in the radio, they can, you know, you're looking at different angles. So again, you use those different vantage points. And so you can now localize and track the radio emission coming from, you know, the electrons uh, and the solar wind and the coronal mass ejections themselves. And uh, it's, 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 it's pretty interesting how it's set up. It's, it's mounted anti-solar. 
on the main uh, spacecraft bus with three antennas that kind of flare out almost like, I don't know, like they're all at, you know, uh, a 90 degree angle to each other. So you can get, you know, the three the electric field kind of in the three directions, you know, your EZ, your EY, your E, sorry, EX, your EY and your EZ um, measurements. That's the uh, S waves. Those are the two remote sensors. And then there's the two packages that are uh, for more, uh, uh, direct in-situ measurements. And so impact is the in-situ measurements of particles and CME transients, where that and is the A in impact. And so I have to read that as a loud and when it's capitalized. But in any event, um, it's basically, uh, it consists of uh, seven different instruments, three that are mounted on a long boom. So whenever you see uh, stereo, if the solar panels aren't the first thing you notice, then it's this long boom sticking out. That's the second thing you notice. And that boom is on the anti-solar side. And on there are the, um, I'm going to call it the SWEA, you know, S-W-E-A, the Solar Wind Electron Analyzer. And so this is at the far end of the boom, and it's basically, you know, one of those hemispheric kind of cameras on there. It's not an actual camera, but, you know, it's it's got a 360-degree field of view in the plane. And it, it's able to detect, you know, really low energy um, electrons coming from the sun. And so this is just the steady electrons that are being blown out from the solar wind. So this can be less than an electron volt worth of energy up to a few keV that it can detect. And then uh, at the base of the boom, kind of near the spacecraft itself, the bus, is the STE or Super Thermal Electron Telescope. And so this one has a more limited but still wide 80 by 80 square degree field of view, and that detects higher uh, energy electrons uh, going up to about 20 keV. So, you know, uh, about an uh, order of magnitude more energetic than the uh, the SWE. And then finally, um, uh, about one meter away from the end of the boom um, is the magnetometer mag, uh, which, you know, they're always mag. And so there's nothing really fun or exciting about that name. And so uh, that one uh, is interesting. I liked, um, you know, there's a lot of details obviously behind it, but the kind of thing I just thought was worth mentioning is that to give it a huge dynamic range where they could, you know, still make their measurements while they were still in that phasing orbit stage uh, close to the Earth, as opposed to, you know, everywhere else, um, it has eight ranges that can be switched to. So it has this huge dynamic range, but it's only actually scanning, you know, or only has the ability through to measure at one at a time. And so once it exceeds a certain a limit, it then kind of jumps over to another range. And so that's how it's able to, you know, you're able to engineer this thing to be able to have a gigantic uh, dynamic range in terms of magnetic field strength. And then those are the three on the boom. And then there's four more instruments that are pasted right on the uh, the, the spacecraft bus themselves. And their, their arrangement and location slightly different depending on whether you're stereo ahead or stereo behind, but they're the uh, the SEPT, the Solar Electron Proton Telescope, and so this is actually a pair of telescopes that are pointing both ways off the spacecraft bus along the ecliptic, uh, measuring electrons and protons. Uh, there's SIT, the Super Thermal Ion Telescope, which is a uh, mass spectrometer, so, you know, again, this is, you know, in situ measurements, and so it's, you know, it's basically measuring the uh, energy per unit charge uh, uh, of, you know, particles that are going in there, and so it's able to, you know, measure what, what you've got at that location at that time. And then it has a pair of uh, what they call telescopes, but, you know, they're not visible light telescopes. They're, you know, particle telescopes. And so there's the LET, or Low Energy Telescope, which, you know, uh, is looking at protons, helium, and higher thing, uh, more massive things up to iron uh, uh, nuclei, uh, iron particles uh, uh, at, lower ener at lower energies. And then there's the High Energy Telescope, which similarly looks at protons and helium, uh, nuclei, as well as electrons, um, but going up to much higher uh, energy than the low energy telescope, as you can imagine.
uh, from their names. And so that's the third instrument package. And then the final one is plastic, the plasma and super thermal ion composition. And so this is another one of these. Uh, in this case, this one is a mass spectrometer, which again has a heat, uh, hydrogen to uh, iron range that it can measure. You know, it's basically got three different fields of view, and so it's able to basically scan the appropriate entire range that you know you want it to. It's got uh, the one that's kind of a 45 degree field of view aimed at the sun, called the solar wind sensor or SWS, and then it's got the wide angle partition sector section, the wide angle partition section or WAP. Uh, which has ranges from 210 to 225 degrees that are more aimed off away from the sun. So you can go and basically you get less directional info from there, but that allows you to cover kind of all the directions that you want. So, okay. So, I mean, those are the instruments. And, you know, this is a spacecraft that's been around for, you know, you know, since over, over a decade. And, um, you know, it has a bunch of firsts. It's the first time you get this kind of stereo viewing of the sun from out of Earth orbit vantage points, which again are changing over time. It's the first time you're able to track space weather disturbances all the way from the sun to Earth, like continuously. Uh, the first time that you could uh, determine interplanetary shock positions by using radio triangulation. So in other words, uh, this sounds like the S-waves um, instrument, basically, you know, stereoscopic vision with radio is another way of saying radio triangulation. And then uh, you could also do simultaneous imaging of solar activity while at the same time you have in situ measurements happening um, all the way out to 1 AU. And so it just really like had a really tight, really good science case that they built up there. Among the cool things uh, that, you know, over a decade of stereoscopic imaging, um, in addition to just stereoscopic, you know, this is one of these instruments, all the solar you know, obser observatories, you know, in space tend to really be good at finding comets. And so here's one, though, that is not just, you know, uh, a comet near the sun, you know, being uh, observed, you know, by uh, in the chronograph, say, but instead, this is a uh, comet Enki. And you can actually see it as, you know, uh, solar plasma kind of pulsates uh, uh, over it, that it loses its tail, its tail gets stripped off uh, by this uh, solar wave. Uh, which is just an awesome little image to see. But that's the kind of thing you get from, you know, having such a wide uh, angle and being able to see, again, everything going out from the sun to the Earth's orbit. As far as, you know, what's the story now? Stereo A is still cooking, but uh, Stereo B, uh, contact was initially lost uh, on October 1st in 2014. Uh, they were planning a reset uh, to test uh, how, you know, the health of the spacecraft. And um, this was, you know, they wanted to test it before uh, 2015 when it was going to be in conjunction, right? Both spacecraft were going to pass uh, on the far side of the sun and clearly be out of uh, radio contact with the Earth. And so uh, it was later determined that something had happened that imparted an uncontrolled spin of three degrees per second on the spacecraft, which was uh, too much that the reaction wheels couldn't really handle. And um, they briefly regained contact uh, for about two and a half hours in uh, August of 2016. So this is after, you know, the conjunction. And while they considered some ways to basically try to bring it back to life, um, the diminishing power and the loss of signal, they kept, you know, they basically didn't have it for very long, uh, meant that, you know, a couple years later, they declared an official end where they would stop uh, trying to reach it uh, in 2018. And so Stereo B is officially just kind of dead in the water, orbiting around the sun, uh, in its really cool orbit, but Stereo A is still kicking, and you know you can go to the website. I believe the data is you know available for you to download, or um, I'm sure you could just uh, see images that NASA will post on Twitter and other social media to check it out. Mm -hmm. And so that's the uh, that's the Stereo spacecraft, which I mean, it's just such a wonderful thing. It's just it's just a great idea. I, you don't you don't have too much <laughs> when you when you 
pair up spacecraft, right? When you start like, you know, making, you know, multiple spacecraft work in unison together as a single mission, that's exciting enough. And then to do it in this manner, I think is just yeah. straight up brilliant. Yeah. There, there are a lot of single spacecraft missions that are doing really cool things, but yeah, like you said, th this just feels novel, doesn't it? Kind of yeah, that, unique. That, yeah. Yeah, that new excitement that you get. It's really cool. So next week, this will be a little bit of a harder clue, and we're going to give you the date range. Specifically, this is uh, the 27th through the 2nd. All right, and this is in 1985, and the clue is room for one more. That's a question, so room mm -hmm. for one more. Room for one more. I don't know if I should say that seductively. Uh, it, that feels right, <laughs> but I probably shouldn't. And that's next week in 1985. And if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. We got a couple of uh, space flight events. Well, a couple of launches, a couple of other things, and the first one is a launch. So what's that going to be, Dennis? First up on October 20th. So uh, if you, you know, just this uh, podcast has just dropped into your feed, <laughs> keep an eye out for um, a launch uh, uh, later today or tonight, uh, depending on where you live. Um, with Electron, uh, it will be its uh, 15th flight. Uh, the mission is called In Focus. And so this is going to be you know, a number of payloads, uh, in particular, a CSAT-2B Earth Imaging Microsatellite for Canon Electronics and nine SuperDove Earth Imaging Nanosats for Planet. And so the reference of InFocus is because they are Earth Observation payloads. Uh, really works well. And so again, uh, October 20th, uh, keep an eye out for this launch uh, with a window from 2114 to 2203 UTC, or for people on the East Coast uh, of the United States, that's 514 to 603 p.m. And of course, it'll be launching out of their Launch Complex 1 in New Zealand, although I guess with their WALPS 1 coming up, that's not going to be obvious uh, anymore. So <laughs> Yeah. And then the next day on October 21st is the launch of a Falcon 9, and that's with uh, another Starlink mission. So this is the 1.0 version Starlinks, and this is their 14th launch. So just another batch, and there was one just, just this morning as we recorded this, so they really are stepping it up well it's more that they're ca they're catching it up at this point <laughs> okay all right true true <laughs> they do have a little <laughs> bit of catching up to do um so this will be launching at 1636 universal time so that'll be 1236 p.m on the east coast and of course that's launching from slick 40 at cape canaveral keep an eye out for that i'm sure we'll be able to see that if we want and keep an eye out for the train which i've still yet to see <laughs> <laughs> yeah me too maybe now with winter Same approaching here. the skies will be a little bit more clear yeah i guess it's more dust, fewer clouds. Anyway. All right. So I've got a number of things on NASA TV for you to keep an eye out for. First up is the farewell and hatch closure coverage of uh, Soyuz MS-16. That's going to be on Wednesday, October 21st. Coverage for the ha the farewells and hatch closure uh, begins at 3.30 and the uh, hatch closure is actually scheduled for 4.10 p.m. Eastern Time. And then we have the deorbit burn and landing coverage. Or oh, the, the undocking coverage uh, comes first. Uh, undocking is scheduled at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time uh, again on Wednesday. Coverage begins at 7. Um, and then at 9.30 p.m. will be the start of the coverage of the deorbit burn and landing. Um, landing is currently... Uh, scheduled for 10.55 p.m. Eastern Time. And so NASA TV is going to be pretty darn busy 
uh, coming up. But um, if you're looking for something to do before the Electron launch, uh, check out live coverage of OSIRIS-REx's doing its touch-and-go or tag maneuver to collect samples from the asteroid Bennu. Uh, NASA will be giving this live coverage uh, at 5 p.m. Eastern uh, on October 20th, which is the Tuesday evening or afternoon. And uh, at that, you know, it's going to include uh, control room views, mission audio during it. And so uh, it's going to be some really exciting stuff, you know, fingers crossed that everything goes smoothly. Uh, and then uh, if you want to get the real nitty gritty details afterwards, the following day on October 21st, Wednesday, also at 5 p.m. Eastern will be the post tag briefing. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. Well, then let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right. So that is all. And we will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you. Thank you.